Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 27 in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, August the 6th. First, I'll be talking to Real Bergen-Doyle, a local Australian business growth strategist and billion-dollar disruptor who has a passion for SMEs. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors economist Alex Joyner about the state of Australia's economy following the lockdowns. But now, let's talk to Real Bergen-Doyle. Well, Real, what are your business trends and predictions for FY21-22? Uh, hi, Leon. Thanks so much for having me. I, my sense around the trends, very similar to what we've seen happen over 2020 through the pandemic. I've been surveying... Uh, hundreds and hundreds of businesses since the beginning of the pandemic right to today. 67% said that they were negatively impacted. 13% said they'd grown. Uh, keep This is pretty much the similar results. I'm still getting to this point. And 32% remain committed to growth. So um, we are seeing trends where people are spending money where they weren't spending it before. So because of the lack of travel and so on, people are doing things that they wouldn't otherwise do. So there's plenty of opportunities out there for business. The, uh, the key is going to be to remain flexible, to adapt, to be able to lead your business, lead your sector, take initiative. Uh, the changes in consumer behaviour, uh, both B2B and B2C are significant. And, and to me, it represents a huge opportunity. So the requirements to tap the opportunities out there are, are uh, to be flexible, lead and adapt. And that's going to continue uh, as a major requirement over the next 12 to 24 months. I take it with the border restrictions and restrictions on travel, the big spending will be on technology, won't it? Uh, technology, but also people are doing things like renovations to their homes and pools <laughs> uh, and buying luxury cars, which they weren't going to buy. Uh, I mean, even even for myself, we put a pool in. <laughs> we, 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 we had no plans to put a pool in, and all of a sudden we have this beautiful, amazing pool and spa um, and that pool builder, by the way, is busier than he has been in the history of his business. And it's quite a significant size business in terms of an SME. And he's never been busier because people are spending money in unexpected ways and unexpected places as a co an unintended consequence of the pandemic. And I think we've got to tap all of those opportunities. And the other thing that's happened, obviously, is there's trillions of dollars that have been pumped into the market to support individuals and to support businesses to get through this thing. And that money is now flowing. That money is being spent. 
That would suggest that pool builders and house builders and construction engineers would be making good money. Oh, they are, and they're busier than ever. Like you, it's it's incredibly difficult to get tradespeople, builders, landscapers, pool builders. All of those people are hard to get at the minute. And 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 I'm based in Australia, but I'm actually in New Zealand for family reasons at the minute. And right here, there's an absolute shortage of trades. Everyone's flat out. <laughs> it's a, it's really a it's been amazing to see what we all thought was going to be this huge crash and while there was obviously impacts but you're even seeing the share market has bounced back and you know what we thought was going to be this massive crash has been avoided or averted by all the funds that were pumped into the market and by how people are responding consumer confidence is actually up which is crazy <laughs> you would think yeah, and, and if certain uh, industries are doing better than others. Absolutely. And yeah. and they're all very, some of them are quite unexpected. Like who thought, who would have guessed that the luxury car market would boom during COVID? But it has. Now, uh, what, what sort of strategies should any business implement this financial year to grow their business? There's a couple of ways to look at that. Obviously, there's very specific strategies for growth depending on the type of business you, you are, the industry you're in. In my world, the fastest way to create growth is to continue Continue to ask yourself, how can we add more value? How can we add more value to our customers, to our prospective customers, to our larger community, to the people we make a difference with? How can we add more value? How can our business add more value to, to our market? That's a fundamental way to find opportunities for growth in any business, regardless of type. But obviously, there's very specific strategies required for each type of business in each industry. But larger than that, having having said that, the, the other thing that I think people really need to focus on at this time is three things. There's three keys in my world to thriving in disruptive times like we're in. One is perspective, two is strategy, and three is action. So if I just talk about perspective for a minute, I know there was a period where everyone was a little bit panicked about what was happening and you could barely see, people could barely see other than right in front of them. What do I have to deal with today, tomorrow? That was where people were at. But even in that time of crisis that people went through and some businesses are still going through it around the world, it's really important to stop and actually remember business is a long game. Business is a marathon, not a sprint. You want to be thinking, okay, where do I want this business in 10 years time? Where do I want it to be in 2030, 2031, 2032? What do I want it to look like then? And then work backwards from that and be making decisions in these tough times based on that future, not based on just the circumstances we're dealing with today. So you have to have a long-term perspective whilst we handle short-term requirements of our businesses. That's the first one perspective. The second one is strategy. What is the strategy that is going to get you to that goal faster and more easily, more profitably than any other strategy? Most business owners I deal with often miss leverage points in their businesses where they can make an adjustment in their focus and all of a sudden get to that goal much quicker and much easier and that can be everything from understanding your true value clients true value to a particular strategy particular to that industry but you've got to stop and be strategic for for a little bit stop and think do the thinking work do the go out to to that longer term goal and work backwards from that and think about uh think about your business be strategic versus being busy all the time got to stop and be strategic for a minute and then the third thing is actions well what actions well you want to take the actions that are going to forward 
your immediate short-term needs as well as be in line with where you want to end up on the other side of what we're dealing with in 2020, 2021, and probably even into 2022. So you want to be taking actions now versus knee-jerk. You want to be taking actions in the context, even in the short-term of that longer-term game. So really for me, it's perspective, strategy, and action is what people need to be focused on at the minute. Now, in terms of strategy of how do I add value, those businesses would have to be talking to their clients, wouldn't they? They could. That would be a great idea. <laughs> so there's lots of ways to do it. Often your actual team know, they'll often know what the customers and clients want or what would make a difference to them. And they have lots of ideas to make a difference. I had one one business that I've been working with is in the construction sector and you know they got massively impacted by COVID. They went from 25 million to 7 million overnight, they had to make huge adjustments in the business. And what we did was we used that time to actually have the leadership team really engage in, well, where do we want this business to be in 10 years time? Who would we need to be to do that? What value would we need to add? How would we need to operate differently? What projects would we need to take on right now to, to basically renovate the business in a way uh, whilst the crazy process was going on out there and and the team absolutely smashed it in that process added enormous value made a difference for their current clients and future clients we you know we took we put put initiatives and projects in that they're inspired by uh, and that whole process has lifted that business completely and they made it with their budget was to make it back to 11 million actually made it back to 13 million uh, in the middle of COVID where they were shut down for several months. So they're well on track now to be back at 25 million and on to 50 after that. So there's lots of ways your team can add value and then lots of ways to talk to your customers and clients. You can do old-fashioned things like <laughs> that some people say are old-fashioned. I don't think they are. Things like client advisory boards. Have a mix of your clients be on a Zoom call and ask them what they think. Well, what could we do better? How could we do it better? How would you rate us in this? How would you rate us in that? What would you love to see us do? What would add more value to you? How could we help you more and they will tell you and then off you do you go away and have your team figure out how to do it so yes a fantastic concept to speak to customers especially at this time i think that the people are i think people have been quite gracious due to all the challenges that they know that business is facing they know they're facing them themselves they've been quite gracious so if there was ever a time they'd be very happy to contribute it would be now should businesses be taking risks in the coming year well it depends how you relate to risks <laughs> of course in my head, innovation, some business owners, some some entrepreneurs, innovation can feel risky. But uh, at this time, I think we have to innovate. How we do business has to change. We have to evolve. We have to move with how the consumers, how our clients are wanting to do business. So it's almost riskier. You know, one client I'm working with is debating whether to, to put their parts business online. I'm like, that. there is no risk in that. In fact, if you don't do it, you'll be out. So, so in fact... Innovation is key at the minute. So what might have been seen as should I or shouldn't I, it's too risky. Now's the time to go for it because as I said, the market's changed. The way people want to do business has changed. And there's a little bit of wiggle room in terms of people, as, as I said, there's quite a bit of compassion out there. So if you try something and it doesn't work, uh, you probably can correct. Now, in terms of financial risk, obviously people need to be very, very vigilant with their funds at the minute, particularly with the market being able to change on a dime. So that's, that's a different set of considerations that have to be uh, looked at. What you're saying is it's riskier not to take risks. I, I think... Uh, I was once told by a mentor of mine that all lack comes from going too fast or too slow. And what I find with a lot of businesses is that 
um, business as usual or complacency can set in and they get too slow to make changes that are required in their business. And right now, we don't have the time for that. As, a, as an SME market, the backbone of our global economy, incredibly important, you know, huge percentages of our GDP, we have to, we have to, we have to innovate, we have to evolve, we have to improve if you want to be here and thriving and growing at the other side of this thing, which is what I want for everyone, as I'm sure you do, Leon. Yeah, and uh, this is the only way to grow and scale your business. Yes, absolutely. And again, you know, growth and scaling is completely up to, like, it's what the founder wants. What does the founder or the owner or the leader of that business want for this? What does it want this business to achieve in, in a couple of different ways? A few different ways, actually. One is net magic number, net profit. What, what do you want the business to output from a profitability point of view? And therefore, what revenue need, do you need to do? And therefore, what are we selling to whom and how many of it? <laughs> Who are we making a difference to? Uh, so that's the first question to ask. The second question is, what's the lifestyle I want as the founder of that business? The third question is, that's what I call magic lifestyle. The third question is, what's our contribution and reach? Who do we want to make a difference with in the market and how many of them do we want to touch and, and reach? The fourth thing is, what's our give back? What do we want to give back? What are we going to donate to? You know, we, there's a beautiful platform called b1g1.com. Micro giving on a global scale is fantastic. And then the fifth thing is, what do we want our valuation to be? What are we, If we ever wanted to exit, what do we want the value of this asset to be? What are we working on? We should be thinking about our businesses as assets. So really, the founder has to answer those questions the leader of the business owner has to answer those questions and then based on those questions you know how much you need to you'll know exactly how much you need to grow how much you need to scale and then that is that sets the tone for every every other piece of growing of developing the business well real that's all very very informative and thank you very much for your time oh thanks so much for having me leon i hope it was of value and now let's talk to ifm investors economist alex joiner with all the lockdown most economists are tipping a negative september quarter there is even, there's even a prospect of a recession coming up. Uh, what's your view about that? Well, it's certainly been a, a very, very sharp turnaround in the sort of economic story and the economic outlook. There was a lot of optimism in the Australian economy before the current episode of, of lockdowns in Victoria and New South Wales, obviously. You know, it was how quickly can the Reserve Bank bring forward its, its tightening of policy because the Australian economy is just really outperforming all expectations and you know we, we need to take away some of the stimulus now that has very very much reversed course um, and economists as you point out leon have quickly uh, altered their economic forecast especially in the near term and you know, q3 is is basically a write-off we arguably could have a little bit of a softer q2 uh, real gdp number just because of the victorian lockdowns that were there but certainly Q3, uh, there's the impact of Victoria and obviously New South Wales. And, and that's going to weigh very, very heavily on the real GDP figures. Estimates sort of range between a negative one and negative 2% uh, outturn for Q3, but we really don't know. Um, and just to put that in context, you know, if, if we get a minus two in Q3, uh, the year on year number for 2021 will be about 1.7%. Uh, and that's in contrast with what the Reserve Bank was expecting, a, a four and three quarter percent uh, year on year outturn by Q4. So a material shift in, in, in just where we were thinking the economy was going to go. Now, the debate around recession, you know, it's there. People have highlighted it as a risk. And I think it is a risk, but it's all around the public health crisis and, and what happens with lockdowns and how we can and lift ourselves out of 
of the current restrictions. And that will just define the economics about this. There's no question that when uh, lockdowns are lifted, that you know people will go back to some more normal level of uh, economic activity so that will see a rebound but it just is the open question will that happen in q4 now we hope it will but you know the new south wales government has put certain targets in terms of vaccination rates on that so you know we might see a situation where we have lockdowns and then we just have uh, restrictions in place and this might be in new south wales it might be further across the country um, that hold back economic activity. So we don't get that large rebound until we get, you know, the 80% vaccination rate that, you know, the government has highlighted as a level that they want to see so we can sort of rule out future lockdowns. But until we reach that level, which might be, you know, late in this year, lockdowns will be the default from states and, and a clear economic risk. The government is talking about uh, 70 to 80% by the end of a year. So uh, we've still got a wait to go. And uh, we're only at, uh, what, 14.5%. So uh, to get up to uh, 70, 80%, that's a long, long way to go. Australia's vaccination rate has been has been poor when you compare us globally, and that, that's sort of a, a well-publicised uh, development. Uh, we're behind the curve, well behind the curve, uh, and we need to catch up. And it's just how quickly we can do that with the supply of vaccine that we have to get to this 80% mark that, that the government has... Uh, sort of put a line in the sand as to, you know, we can more materially open up the economy, we can have less downside risks to the economy from lockdowns when we reach this 80% level. And I think that's a, a strong guide for, for policymakers on, on fiscal, and both, uh, fiscal and monetary policy, because they know that they have to support economies until we reach that target uh, and we can rule out lockdowns. So fiscal support will need to be there for future lockdowns should they occur. And I think this really defines... Uh, the Reserve Bank's uh, stance as well. And we'll find out about uh, more about that tomorrow uh, at, their, at their meeting. But I think the Reserve Bank has to, one, wind back QE, or sorry, wind back its tapering or suggested tapering of QE. You know, they didn't even get to taper. They only got to suggest they taper. So, you know, extend QE for a, for a longer period than, than that, July, uh, sorry, the September uh, taper and then maybe even see what more they could do to support economies uh, maybe the term funding facility comes back maybe yield curve control these sorts of measures until we get to a point where again we don't need to uh, lock down economies so you know I think it'll be uh, policymakers need to sort of be working together to get us to that point of, of 80 percent and and as you say you know many are forecasting that to be November December this year um you know, I, I hope that's the case, but I think, you know, the risk would seem to be that that might take a little bit longer than that. Well, the issue is, too, that uh, what does that mean for GDP growth in the future? Because I would imagine GDP growth uh, next year and it's going to be a lot slower than uh, our competitors overseas who actually address vaccination very well, much better than us. Yeah, the countries that are that are, have higher vaccination rates, well, the, the clear payoff of that is that they have a more stable uh, path out of the public health crisis and therefore their their economic growth path is likewise and you know Australia is going to be behind in that and and the tailwinds that we've had to to growth in the Australian economy are still going to be heavily impeded for an extended period of time and that was something that we learned with the government's um, you know staged or phased um, 
opening up of the economy is that you know our borders will be closed for an extended period of time we won't have that population growth we won't have the tourists coming in that we saw before the crisis to to bolster economic growth and give us that you know strong growth path out uh, we're going to just have the um, policy support and the recovery phase uh, on a domestic imperative to get us out of this and that that would suggest that you know we might not be as optimistic about 2022 growth as, as we previously might have been. There's a prospect of the borders reopening next year, and that would improve economic growth. Well, I think that's right. You know, if we can open up borders and you know, the, the government has talked about trials of economic uh, migration, so students coming in, a, in sort of at a, at a very measured pace as soon as they can possibly do that, you know, that will that will open up another another path of growth that we welcome relief to the, the, the tourism sector and and, and sectors uh, education sector as well that are, are really struggling with the uh, absence of migration but you know I would be a little bit skeptical around just how strong we should expect that pulse to be you know it'll be quite some time before net overseas migration gets back to the levels that we saw before the crisis um, and then the levels of, of tourists and students, you know, it's, it's really an open debate. And I think this is something that's sort of being a little bit overlooked at the moment is that, you know, it would be my view that we shouldn't expect the level of students and tourists to go back to what it was uh, before the pandemic over coming years, just because, you know, ongoing trade tensions uh, that have been simmering away while we've been going through the pandemic are still there and uh, and i think it would be an optimistic forecaster that would suggest that chinese students and, and chinese tourists will come back in the same way uh as they were coming to australia before the pandemic because we have seen that outside iron ore you know australia's exports goods exports to china have have come off you know between 30 and 40 billion dollars on an annualized rate and it seems to me reasonable to expect that those declines in goods trade will extend to services trade and that that is a bit of a a bit of a warning for for future services trade with at least china well that means in 2022 we're not going to see a massive pickup in economic growth and we won't see it until 2023-24 look i think it's going to be a much more measured path out of out of the economic crisis i think we got very excited about you know very very strong rates of growth and and these would be continued uh, you know the, the huge amount of stimulus in the system you know the cash balances of households and all these sorts of things would see us through to some very very strong rates of growth but like we've seen in the recent economic data is that you know uncertainty sort of breeds this situation where you know businesses are might not be as keen to invest and households might save a little bit more than they otherwise might have spent going forward over a number of years. You know, this could be a bit of scarring here. It seems like going back to a normal way of life is a long way off. Um, and then, you know, we don't really know what the new normal is. Uh, you know, are we going to be working, shopping, you know, traveling in the same way that we were before the crisis? And I think that's a very much an open question. But I would suspect that, you know, these, these things won't be uh, as strong as they were before the pandemic and that, that will weigh on growth. And you know, we're, we're going to have this situation where, you know, growth rates are probably a little bit more modest than, than we thought coming out of, you know, coming out of the crisis, uh, even at the start of this year. So what you're suggesting then is that the lockdowns would have actually had an impact on confidence, on people's spending and their habits, and because uh, they don't really know when the next lockdown is happening. Well, that's right. In the near term, I think that it would be reasonable to expect uh, consumer and business confidence to 
to Eberway, uh, especially in Victoria, New South Wales, uh, maybe also Queensland, where we've seen some restrictions come into place over recent days. And, and the reason I say that is, you know, if lockdowns are the default of response from state governments and to restrict economic activity remains the default until we get to 80% vaccination rates across the country, then, then that is a clear economic risk. If you face the risk as a small business of being locked down with very short uh, periods of notice, then you, know, you might not take on uh, the extra employee. You might not look to invest and expand as readily as you might you know, if you thought, you know, everything was going to be a little bit more smooth and we're going to just have an economic recovery from here. So I really think we, we need to watch the confidence numbers. Uh, confidence has been ebbing away in the consumer space for, for some time. Uh, and I think, you know, business confidence will probably go the same way. Um, and we'll, we'll see a much more sort of apprehensive uh, household and business sector going forward. And that, that will weigh on the recovery. So, you know, we'll, we'll get that negative Q3, um, but will Q4 be, be the bounce that we want to see? I, I suspect that it might be a little bit more uh, modest uh, than, than many would expect if we just uh, open up. Well, Alex, that's all very interesting. And thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it, Leon. Thanks. So what's happening in the news? Well, big tech companies have reported record-breaking profits, prompting warnings the world is headed towards a blade-runner future of unchecked corporate power. In the last three months, the U.S.'s five largest tech companies made combined profits of more than U.S. $68 billion, with Amazon's sales tipping U.S. $1.2 billion a day. Google, Apple and Microsoft last week all reported record-breaking quarterly sales and profits, while Facebook announced its fastest growth in five years. The combined fortunes, richest six billionaires, passed U.S. $1 trillion for the first time, according to the Institute for Policy Studies. We're looking at a Blade Runner future, a world where a handful of companies will dominate all the economic activities. This is not just bad for the economy, it's bad for consumers, for communities, for competition, said Chuck Collins, senior scholar at IPS. Experts warn the increasing economic might of these companies mean they can buy out competitors to establish monopoly control and consolidate political power to fight any official or government that challenges them. And payments company Square has reached a deal to acquire Australian buy-now, pay-later provider Afterpay in a $39 billion all-stock transaction that would be the largest takeover in Australian history. Square, whose chief executive Jack Dorsey is also Twitter's CEO, is offering Afterpay shareholders a 0.375 shares of Square stock for every share they own, a 30% premium based on the most recent closing price of both companies. Melbourne-based Afterpay allows retailers to offer customers the option of paying for products in four instalments without interest if the payments are made on time, similar to the concept of lay-by, which is popular in Australia but rare overseas. The deal's size would exceed the record set by Unibail Redamco's takeover of shopping centre group Westfield at an enterprise value of $24.7 billion in 2017. The transaction, which was announced in a joint statement from the companies on Monday, is expected to be completed in the first quarter of 2022. Afterpay said at 16 million users regard the service as a more responsible way to borrow than using a credit card. Merchants pay Afterpay a fixed fee, plus a percentage of each order. The deal underscored the huge appetite for buy now, pay later providers, which have boomed during the coronavirus pandemic. Adoption of buy now, pay later services had tripled by early this year compared with pre-pandemic volumes, according to data from Adobe Analytics, and were particularly popular with young consumers. 
and everybody who is fully vaccinated by December the 1st should be paid $300 under a proposal by federal labour that would add $6 billion to the COVID-19 response bill and almost double the cost of the entire vaccination program. Labor made the demand on Monday night, just after the government announced that a string of support measures for Australia's struggling airlines, including taxpayer-subsidised tourist fares, will be extended until the end of the year, as well as a new system of retention payments to save the jobs of domestic aircrew. Labor leader Anthony Albanese said the $300 payments, which would include those already vaccinated, would create incentives for others to be vaccinated. The money would help stimulate businesses affected by lockdowns. The government notes the latest statistics show vaccine rates are continuing to increase and the desire to end or avoid lockdowns is acting as incentive enough. And Commonwealth Bank and Westpac will begin a pilot program for employee vaccinations using AstraZeneca following agreement with the federal government's vaccine task force leader, Lieutenant General Fruin. The banks are considering starting the rollout for some 12,000 bank staff and their families in the eight Sydney local government areas that have been deemed hotspots when they can access vaccines, potentially in the next week or so. And Qantas will stand down 2,500 staff across its mainline and Jetstar brands for two months as it grapples with the continued lockdown in Sydney and COVID-19 spot fires in other states. The stand-downs will take effect in a fortnight and employees will be paid until mid-August. Affected workers include domestic pilots, cabin crew and airport workers and are primarily concentrated in New South Wales, with staff in other states are set to be stood down as well. The staff will be paid in full for their two-week notice period, commencing now. The federal government this week announced that airlines will be able to claim $750 a week for up to half their aircrew in workforce on the condition that none were retrenched. Qantas Chief Executive Alan Joyce said the stand-down was forecast to last for two months. Rio Tinto could owe as much as $400 million to the traditional owners of major Pilbara Iron Ore Mine, with a company accused of decades of underpayments to a native title group representing remote Pilbara communities, even as it declares record $14 billion in iron ore profits. The allegations are based on an audit of more than 20 years of payments due under one of the first ever land use agreements between native title holders and a major mining company in WA, and come after Rio's iron ore division record profit of $13.8 billion in the first half of the year. And the Reserve Bank of Australia held the cash rate near zero and announced an increase to the weekly bond purchase that had reduced a month ago as lockdowns threatened to curtail economic growth. And Crown Resorts has lost its CEO and chairman as Royal Commission Ray Finkelstein QC reveals he's considering splitting the operation of the casino to the hotel, throwing it open to a rival operator. Crown Resorts has announced that Melbourne casino boss Xavier Walsh will step down later this month. Crown has also confirmed that Chairman Helen Coonan will be stepping down by the end of the month. And the subscription model that has underpinned the success of Netflix, Spotify and Amazon Prime is shaking up the Australian furniture market. Furniture subscription startup Breeze Furniture is aiming to disrupt the market for disposable, fast furniture by enabling consumers to rent on-trend furniture for 3 to 12 months and swap on-return items when their preferences change. Breeze has signed a partnership with US homewares giant William Sonoma's West Elm, which is known for its mid-century modern vibe, quality craftsmanship and commitment to sustainable materials. From this week, Breeze will offer for rent a range of more than 70 products from West Elm, including sofas, armchairs, coffee tables and consoles. And Australia's biggest natural gas distributor aims to have a 100% green hydrogen product available for new housing subdivisions by 2025, as part of a big push into renewable gas to avoid losing out to electrification in the rush to net zero emissions. Australian Gas Infrastructure Group, or AGIG, 
which owns distributors, multi-net and Australian gas networks, is targeting all of its gas network to be on at least a 10% renewable gas blend by 2030 to pave the way towards its new stretch target of net zero emissions by 2040, said Chief Executive Ben Wilson. The commitment comes as the Victorian State Government has issued a consultation paper on a roadmap for the substitution of natural gas as part of its pledge to reach net zero emissions by 2050, and Infrastructure Victoria has a consultation ongoing on the future of gas infrastructure. The momentum and commitment to reach net zero emissions gives the companies that distribute gas to households little option but to adapt or face a slowly dwindling business as new gas connections are halted and they are left with only existing customers. AGIG, owned by Hong Kong infrastructure giant Chung Kong Group, sees developing options to supply customers with hydrogen and biomethane as the essential way forward to align with its own corporate net zero targets approved by its board in early June and those of governments and stakeholders. AGIG in May became the first utility in Australia, possibly worldwide, to operate a green hydrogen blending product that supplies hydrogen into the gas distribution grid in a business-as-usual operation rather than an innovation project. That 5% blend of hydrogen in the gas flow supplies 700 customers in the Adelaide suburb of Tonsley Park, which AGIG wants to expand to a 10% blend, supplying thousands of homes. A larger project planned for Albury-Wodonga, which in May secured funding from the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, will supply a 10% green hydrogen gas blend to 40,000 customers coming on online in 2023-24. And advertising buyers fear continued lockdown measures for the Greater Sydney region will spark a mini-revenue crash, as marketers will be forced to cancel spending if uncertainty persists. Although the Sydney lockdown and smaller Melbourne lockdown have not yet led to a media revenue crash, as witnessed in 2020, spending across the Greater Sydney market is on a precipice, as marketers start to consider cancellation should lockdown measures continue. Referring to the last year's national lockdown, which sent ad spending in April-May off a cliff, advertising buildings have declined more than 40%. Last year's Australia's advertising market contracted by $1.1 billion, as the COVID-19 pandemic crunched spending in the West by $9.9 billion, reversing two years of growth across the US, UK, Australia, New Zealand and Canada. And Australia's housing market posted its weakest month of growth since January, as declining affordability and waning pandemic stimulus weigh on the stellar gains seen this year. House prices grew at a slower pace in July in every capital city in Australia, even as the nation posted a 1.6% increase for the month, according to data released by CoreLogic. Sydney was hit the hardest, with a monthly capital gain on houses in Australia's most populous city falling to 2% in July from 3.7% in March. However, low interest rates are still fueling demand in a market where supply is running more than a quarter below the five-year average. The housing boom, which was led by rapid growth in higher-end dwellings, is slowing as prices in that segment cool. CoreLogix is forecasting the rate of growth will continue to slow in the market overall, with tighter credit policies and an earlier-than-expected rise in interest rates the main risks. Australian house prices are up 14.1% in the first seven months of 2021. An oil search has agreed in principle to a $21 billion-plus merger deal with Santos after the Adelaide-based company sweetens its offer to combine the two oil and gas producers to create a regional champion. The breakthrough comes two weeks after Santos' original offer was unveiled, which oil search had refused to engage on as it said it undervalued its assets in Papua New Guinea and Alaska. Investors who had been pushing for oil search to engage on a potential deal immediately cheered a major step towards a merger between the pair to create a company that would overtake Woodside Petroleum in production and market value and be able to better compete in the Asian market. And Ramsey Healthcare believes it will get more work as, as patients flow to the private sector following the ban on non-urgent elective surgery at public hospitals in Sydney. 
Ramsey, the largest private hospital operator in Australia, has been doing work for the New South Wales public sector over the last six months to help with a backlog following the prolonged ban on non-urgent surgeries in March 2020 as COVID-19 first struck the country. New South Wales Health on Friday said non-urgent elective surgery would be suspended at public hospitals across Greater Sydney as the state battled the outbreak of the Delta variant. And BHP will build new nickel mines and wind farms in Western Australia as it looks to accelerate away from the fossil fuel sector and prove its green credentials to electric car makers. The new mines will help BHP Nickel West boost production in the wake of an agreement to supply Elon Musk's Tesla that includes targets for reducing emissions in mining and processing. BHP Nickel West is eyeing several locations for a 40-50 megawatt wind farm close to its nickel mining operations in the northern goldfields of WA. The Reborn Nickel Division said it would also commission a second wind farm to supply power to its refinery at Quinarnan, south of Firth. And the head of Australia's largest privately owned renewable energy company has called for the federal government to sign up to net zero as the newly expanded group prepares for a period of huge growth. Chief Executive Officer of Powering Australian Renewables, or Power, Jeff Detailers, said it was important to sign up sooner rather than relying on technology roadmap as a market signal to decarbonise the economy. He called for the federal government to put a target on the hill like everyone else as he embarks on a large growth phase for the company that will include branching out into energy storage and expanding its considerable 3 gigawatt wind and solar portfolio. Powering the renewables power, a partnership between QIC, the Future Fund and AGL Energy, will become the largest owner of wind and solar generation in Australia and the largest renewable energy generator after Snowy Hydro after completing a $2.7 billion takeover of Tilt Renewables on Tuesday. Power now owns all of Tilt's Australian business, with Mercury NZ taking ownership of all of Tilt's New Zealand business following implementation of a scheme of arrangement for the acquisition approved by Tilt shareholders on the 14th of July. Mr Detailers said the company plans to build out Tilt's pipeline of projects focusing on opportunities in the central national electricity market along the eastern seaboard, but he also has an eye on projects in Western Australia. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Hayley Hopwood, Head of Growth at Stripe Technology which basically powers payments on the internet across the whole of Australia globally and which onboarded tens of thousands of customers during 2020, providing them with the tech stack they needed to survive the economic after-effects of the pandemic. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about market trends for the week. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.